You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. This is not really a book about parenting. I say this because the title clearly refers to parenting, which may have given you the impression that the actual book is about parenting. But there's a wise old saying that goes, you can't judge a book by its cover. Like so many wise old sayings, this is stupid, because of course most of the time you can judge a book by its cover. The whole point of the cover is to tell you what the book is about. For example, if the cover says, cooking on a budget, you know the book contains inexpensive recipes. And if the cover says, lose weight fast, you know the book contains lies. But as I say, this book isn't really about parenting. It mentions parenting, but it also covers many other topics, including grammar, sex, camels, women, brain surgery, sex with women, how to become a professional author, airlines, Justin Bieber, and death. That's why my original idea was to give the book a more vague and general title. Here are some of the titles I submitted to the publisher. Dave Barry's Vague General Book of Humor Topics. Dave Barry's Guide to Whatever This Book is About. Dave Barry, a Dave Barry book by Dave Barry. Dave Barry, you probably thought he was dead. But the marketing people wanted something more specific, and they liked the idea of a title that was about family and or parenting. So after rejecting several more of my suggestions, including without family we would have nothing except way more money and spare time, they went with the current title, You Can Date Boys When You're 40. Dave Barry is a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the Miami Herald. He's the author of some 30 books. Recent best-selling books include his Peter Pan prequels written with Ridley Pearson, Dave Barry's History of the Millennium So Far, and I'll Mature When I'm Dead. With Alan Zweibel, he co-authored Lunatics. His most recent novel is Insane City. His new book is You Can Date Boys When You're 40, Dave Barry on Parenting and Other Topics He Knows Very Little About. Thank you for joining me, Dave. Thanks for having me. This is such a fun book to read, and you do a lot of very interesting things in this book. You play with form, with humor, and you modulate your tone a lot. I did, I did not realize that I modulated my tone, but I'm, I'm led here. That <laughs> in your view, I did. We'll, we'll, get to, we'll get to that. Okay. Now, uh, one of the things, right off the bat, you suggest that this is a, a book about parenting, since you put it on the cover, and then you say, of course, that you know very little about it. But one of the things I think that this gets to is the fact that nobody knows much about parenting except what they experience, and by the time you know it, it's too late. Yeah, it's, parenting is <clears throat> it's very much a um, seat-of-the-pants thing, and I've concluded that you really have almost no effect on your children, other, you know, except unless you, f- you lose them somewhere like or forget to feed them. But other than that, they turn out the way they turn out. And I have found that the parents who do the most parenting, like hover moms that they don't necessarily get any kinds of good results. So I don't even know that parenting is a good thing to do that much of, you know. I think a large part of parenting is learning to do less and knowing when to do less and less of it, which is kind of what you have to do when your kids grow up. Uh, and I say that in a, in a, because it excuses my inexcusable um, parenting. I, particularly with my, my, my daughter, the, the point I make um, in the essay about her is that since she went through puberty, which we need to find a cure for puberty, but since she went through it, I really don't have a ton to do with her. You know, like she's dimly aware that I even exist, and I am dimly aware of what's going on in her life. You know, one of the things that I really like about this book is uh, the way that you write your humor. You'll start out with 
take us through a sentence, and the first two-thirds of the sentence, we know exactly where you're going. And then all of a sudden, you ha have this way of taking a left turn, of taking us a place that makes perfect sense. Judo. Judo is key to um, humor. And, you know, most and many jokes, just making sure the, the person listening doesn't really know, thinks you know. They think they know where you're going, and then you don't go there. That's kind of, that's an essential element of humor. Of course, it sounds very boring when I say it, <laughs> but I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Well, the it, left turn, as you say. It, that, this is the, the very difficult topic for, uh, to talk about. Um, it's like, how do you autopsy a body without, <laughs> without killing? Yeah. yeah. So, uh, but I think one of the things that's interesting, too, is that you tell us unpleasant truths things we really don't want to hear in a very pleasant manner. And I, that's one of the, the aspects of this book that really struck me. This, this is a book of you just, all you have to do is really tell the truth very clearly. Well, I, I, I don't know exactly. Maybe you're talking about death. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Justin Bieber Justin concerts. Bieber and death are both, yeah, both very unpleasant topics, and we have to address them. They're, they're inevitable, both of those things. But, yeah, I mean, well, I'll, I'll talk about the, I, I'm 66, and while I wrote the book, I was 65, but I find myself, and I think most people my age do find themselves, thinking much more about dying than they used to, because first of all, like they know people, you know more people who are doing that. And since we're baby boomers, we're all going to be doing it. And, and of course, since we're baby boomers, we're all going to talk much more about our doing it than any other generation ever. And we're the first generation that will ever undergo death, I'm sure, just as we were the first generation to have children. And, but I talk extensively about death. And, yeah, I've always found death to be kind of a funny topic because everybody's so nervous about it and, and everybody's so serious and somber about it. But I like to think, you know, we could, we can, we could take a light-hearted look at, at death. Okay. Now, you suggest that you get a lot of letters, and I, we've all seen these letters that uh, 65 is the new 50. Yeah, it's bullshit. I mean, I'm not <laughs> – wait, I'm not supposed to – I mean, it's whatever word I'm allowed to say on this right show. Yeah, 65 is not the new 50. It's 65, you know. <laughs> 50 is the new 50. I get really tired of that. Um, and that's, that's a very boomer thing to do, to sort of deny reality. We're really good at that and pretend that we're, we're different. We're exceptional. So when we turn 65, we're not like what our parents turned 65. Well, actually, we are. We're really pretty much the same um, physically. Um, we're just denying it more than our parents did. They were comfortable with it. Well, this is something uh, that ever since every time I turn a new, enter a new decade of my life, I find that that decade is being told it's the new previous decade. And I'm wondering if eventually this is going to turn it on itself so that when I'm 85, I'll be told 85 is the new 15 because. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll keep telling us, and one day we'll go, yeah, 93 is the new. <laughs> 93 is death, you know. In the scene, in, in the, when you write about death, you do a great job of mixing, like, humor with real sentiment. And, and this is what I talk about. This is one of the first places where you kind of slightly modulate the tone. And, and so I'd like to just talk about turning, your, you know, your personal experiences in a very guy manner into... Uh, into something that's funny, but also just a little enough poignancy in it that the humor is still there. Oh, I don't know the poignancy part. What I what I most vividly recall writing about, feeling most strongest about in, in my uh, death essay, is uh, Viagra commercials. 
<laughs> because, I mean, because it goes with aging is like this. And again, I kind of blame the boomers somehow because so many boomer guys, you know, are getting old. It became okay all of a sudden to talk about erectile dysfunction in primetime television in one minute long dramatic ads. And, and, uh, and they make me crazy. The one I go off on in the book, I, uh, extended rant, is this, um, he's a cowboy. He's, and he's an old, older guy and he's rangy, rugged cowboy. He's driving his pickup truck, towing two horses across the, you know, the West. And he, and he gets stuck. He gets, truck gets stuck, which is of course a metaphor, I guess, for erectile dysfunction. <laughs> so um, the announcer then says the thing that, this is what set me off in this particular part of this essay. The announcer says, you've reached the age where you don't back down from a challenge, which is such a crock. It is the exact opposite of the truth. I'm an older guy. I'm 66 years old. The one good thing, if nothing else, the only good thing about being this old is you back right down from a challenge. <laughs> You're not an idiot anymore. You don't feel that the challenge is that important, you know? And, and, and so, like, and, and as I get offer as an example, I'll try to phrase this um, in a tasteful <laughs> manner. But if you, if you have any doubt about, you know, the, the virtues of aging and, and backing down from challenges, you should go to YouTube and search for any combination of, some combination of the phrase, shoot bottle rocket out of butt. And you will find a large collection of videos of guys shooting rock, bottle rockets out of their butts. No women, because women would never at any age be that stupid. Men... The guys are doing it, but they're all young guys. Why? Because they didn't back down from the challenge, right? Somebody said, I bet you can't shoot a bottle rocket out of your butt. Oh, yeah, I bet I can shoot it. If you ask a, you ask a grown-up man, and, you know, an older guy, if, you know, to sh if, you know, I say, I dare you to shoot a bottle rocket out of your butt, he's going to say, no, I'm not going to, you know, you, I don't want to do, I don't want to go to the emergency room with you know, bottle rocket burns on my butt. So he'll just, he'll back right down from the challenge. But anyway, so then it goes back, you know, getting back to the commercial. So the guy who doesn't back down from the challenge, he hitches his horses to the front of the truck and he pulls it out of the mud or whatever it's in. And then he has sex with the horses, I guess, because <laughs> he's such a stud with his... No, they don't show that. Uh, and we don't know that it happens, but we do know it gets lonely out there in the West. And there also are no women in this commercial, so... Now, uh, is that what you meant by poignant? I don't think so. <laughs> was, but that was what came to my mind. When... Well, I think this uh, actually speaks to uh, something that you talked to a few times in the book, is the difference between women and men. Yes. Uh, a subject I've always been interested in. Uh, on, on a couple of levels. And one of the things I think that's great is nothing really that men we don't have that many friends. We don't need that many friends. We're really yeah. not thinking yeah. about anything. Exactly right. Yeah, the, the essay is called Nothing Really. And that's basically the answer, like, when women ask you, what are you thinking? And you go, nothing, really. And, and they always get upset because women never are thinking nothing. Women are always thinking something and feeling something. And so they, that's why they, they share feelings and thoughts all the time. Men don't, they always say, why don't men share their feelings and thoughts? I say, well, because we don't have any sometimes. We're just like, our brains are just going, hmm, you know, nothing's really happening in there. Um, this is my contention, that if a woman and a man are sitting in a room together for like an hour, the, she's going to have thousands of thoughts in that hour. She's just going to be like a whirling mass of thoughts, and he's going to have like one thought, you know, and it's going to be something like, you know, my butt itches, you know. There's just not going to be that much for him, um, 
And, I, and, and people think that's humor, but I think it's true. I base this on a lifetime of being a guy, and um, I, I know that there are long stretches where I really don't have that much going on. And I, my wife, who is a woman, and a lifelong woman, is always thinking about something. She can't even like, why, you know, it's two o'clock in the morning. I'll say, what are you, go to, go to sleep. Just stop, <laughs> she'll be excited. Well, should we have invited so-and-so? Just, it's two o'clock in the morning. I can't stop, she can't stop thinking. And I don't know any guys who are like, which is why I think men talk about sports. You know, if my wife sees somebody, a friend of hers, let's say, another woman, that she hasn't seen for two hours, let's say two hours have gone by, she can talk, and that other woman can talk, about the two hours that they have been apart for four hours. I, I can see a, a friend of mine who I have not seen in 20 years. This has happened to me. 20 years. And, and I'll say, hey, how are you doing? What's up? And we are caught up in under a minute. We're completely caught up in the whole 20 years. And then we, we switch over to sports, you know, like, <laughs> I think that's why men talk about sports, because they don't really have that much else to talk about. That's my theory. Well, I, I think, too, that when you were talking about it's just the truth, you do a great job of exposing the truth for its humorous underside. And the truth exposes its humorous underside nowhere better than in uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a part of my uh, effort to understand women. This book, Fifty Shades of Grey, if I, I believe, I'm not mistaken, is the, mo the most successful book ever printed. I mean, sold more copies than any other book ever in modern American literature. Or lit I use the term literature very loosely here. It sold 100 million copies, pretty much all of which were bought by women. This book was huge with women. And so I thought, I'm going to read this book and find out what it is that makes this book so appealing to women. And I bought it and I read it surreptitiously on airplanes, hiding it inside other publications. And, um, and I, I don't want to, I'll, I'm going to give away the plot here, I guess. I don't know if you read Fifty Shades of Grey. No. I, well, okay. I, you read it for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> I did. It's a service I did. Well, the plot, um, this is fairly accurate ver representation of the plot. I'm just going to leave out the sex scenes, but basically this young woman who, who is just um, an unbearable ninny she, I mean, they don't say that, but that's the impression, how she comes across. Gets into a relationship with a, a, a guy. He's a very hot billionaire. And we know this because even though she keeps telling you how she's not shallow and not impressed by those things, she cannot tell you enough how hot this guy is. And she doesn't, she never ceases offering billionaire de details about his lifestyle. So it's very clear he's a hot billionaire. But that's not really why she likes him. We don't know why she likes him. I'll be honest, she never really tells us beyond that he's a hot billionaire. They get into this relationship, and he turns out is kind of, he, he wants to tie her up and beat her, to, not, not to mince words. That's what he likes to do. He even wants her to sign a contract um, saying that, she, you know, she will allow him to do all, and it lists all the things he wants to do to her. So rather than run away in a you know, high rate of speed, you know, she is, of course, more fascinated by this guy, even though she doesn't really want him to tie her up and hit her. And so the whole 300 pages or whatever is, man, he's a hot billionaire. He wants to have sex. Okay, we'll have sex. Wow, that was great. But now he wants to tie me up and hit me. Oh, man, I don't want that. But he's really a hot billionaire. Oh, now he wants to have sex again. Or I was, wow, that was pretty good. But now he wants to tie me up and hit me. I don't want to do that. But he's a really hot billionaire. And it goes on and on and on like that. 
with this, you know, the sex scenes and then the regret and the worries. Finally, at the very end, here, spoiler alert, I'm giving away the, the big moment. She lets him tie her up and hit her. And, spoiler alert, it hurts. She doesn't like it. So she breaks up with him. And that's the end of the book. And I'm saying, that when I'm over, like, wait, wait a minute now. What? What about this is so appealing? To, so I, I asked my wife, um, do you, I said, do you secretly want me to tie you up and hit you? And she goes, no. So all I really got from this book is that it's good to be a hot billionaire. Um, that's it. And I mean, of the three things, hot, billionaire, tie you up and hit you. The only one I could actually do is tie her up and hit her. I'm not going to be hot. I'm not gonna be, and she doesn't want that. So I don't really, I've learned nothing, really nothing from this book. Well, one thing you say you did learn, which I think is, of course, of great interest to every male human being on the planet, is that women are interested in sex. They are. Yes. <laughs> yes. We might not have and ever yeah. guessed. And I, but I know, like, and and it's just you, hot billionaires, though. So. Well, see, because we we know men are interested in sex. Men are, you know, like some things they're not interested in butt sex, but. <laughs> But you, you know, you say women aren't because they never seem to actually want to have sex with you. You know what I mean? That's, that's the general male experience. So it's like very shocking to discover this. But then I realized, well, it's not sex with you they want. It's sex with a hot billionaire. So it's kind of a depressing book when you look at it from that. And I asked women who read the book, why is it, that, you know, why was that book so great? And they honestly could not give me a coherent explanation. So I think it's the hot billionaire thing. Well, now, uh, we also come into uh, the sexual experience, well, not really. No. It's not so far, at least with your daughter. I don't even like the way you phrased that. <laughs> really? Just go back and rephrase that question completely. Gotta... Well, this has to, uh, to do with the... With the My the... daughter, Sophie, yeah. yeah. Well, she, yeah, she, she has a boyfriend. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, I'm not uh-huh. happy about this. Uh-huh. Uh, there's boys. That's the thing. We didn't used to have boys around, you know, back during the princess phase when she dressed as Princess Ariella. You know, the boy would be, in that case, would be the handsome prince who didn't really exist. So I would kind of be, you know, that means me. I'm the dad, you know. I'm the only guy in her life. And then um, this, then boys started showing up, which, you know, now they're they're all over the place. They're on the lawn. They're on the roof. They're in the trees. They're like squirrels. There's boys. <laughs> and I don't like it. I don't like it because I am a male, lifelong male, and I know what we're thinking. You know, we're scum. We've established that. Men are scum. We're a scummy gender. We're not worthy of being around my daughter. Um, so my idea was a trap, steel trap, um, which I'd put on the lawn. It would be humane. I don't, I'm not talking, recommending anything. There'd be a big steel trap on the lawn near the front door, which is where they end up, you know, coming, trying to get into the house. And it would be baited with something that would attract teenage boys, something stupid like fireworks. And I would hear it clang shut, and then I'd go out there, and there'd be a boy in the trap. And I'm not, not inhumane. I live in Miami. I would drive him out into the Everglades and release him in a humane manner out in the Everglades. That's my idea. My wife, who is a woman and therefore doesn't know how, what men are thinking really, um, lets them into the house, lets these boys into the house. And I'll come in, and they'll, in the TV room, there will be my daughter and a boy sitting on exactly the same sofa. I wouldn't mind if he were on a different piece of furniture, ideally located in Anchorage, Alaska. But they're on the same sofa together, this, my, my daughter and this boy. 
So I don't own a firearm. Um, I'm probably the only person in Miami who doesn't own a firearm, but I would like to get one. And I'm not advocating shooting anybody. I would never shoot anybody. But just like I would saunter through the, the, the room with the firearm and maybe as, as they're watching me, it would accidentally discharge into the ceiling, you know, safely into the ceiling. So the boy would know um, two things. One, I have a firearm, and two, I do not have control over it. You know, just <laughs> I'd like that to be in his mind when he's in our house with my daughter, if he has to be there. Well, then and this is not humor, by the way. This is what I really. <laughs> this is how I really actually feel these days, which is kind of depressing. You know, I guess that was a cliche. The dad felt that way, but no, it's not a cliche. It's exactly how I feel. You have just and these are nice boys. He's a, <laughs> my daughter's boyfriend is a nice boy. He's a, I, and I just want to hit him in the face. <laughs> Say hi. Boom. And you have just established your bona fides as an excellent guide to parenting. Yeah, that's exactly yeah, right. Tell us about what a Justin Bieber concert is like. I, I, my sons are too old. They'll never your go. Sons would, sons. Your sons don't want to go no. to a Justin yeah. Bieber concert anyway. And my daughter doesn't anymore either. That's the thing. When I took her, she was 13, and she loved Justin Bieber mm-hmm. back then. She when, Now she's 14. She doesn't love him anymore. She loves something called One Direction, which is worse in a way because there's five of them. But back when she loved Justin Bieber, she had a room in her uh, corner of her room that, that she called the Corner of Appreciation that had pictures of Justin Bieber all over the place. And she was always talking about Justin Bieber and how cute he was and how great he was and how she's going to you know, meet Justin Bieber. So, and I, I would say to her, you know he, has no, he doesn't have any idea who you are. And she said, not yet, which is the last thing you want to hear your daughter say about Justin Bieber. So anyway, she and her friend Stella wanted to invite – they wanted to go to this concert, this Justin Bieber concert, and, they, and this was the – big deal for Sophie for the whole year and we spent a lot of money on, on tickets to go to this concert with Stella and they had um, invitations to their bat mitzvahs Stella and Sophie and they'd written I heart you Justin please come to my bat mitzvah and everything they were going to they were going to give them to Justin Bieber at this concert so he would come to their bat mitzvahs I should point out I'm not Jewish but my wife and daughter are Jewish so that's why she had a bat mitzvah so anyway we go to this concert and first of all it's the loudest thing I've ever heard in my life and I have been in a hurricane I was in Hurricane Andrew and that was not as loud the whole of Hurricane Andrew as just the one girl who happened to be sitting to my right who all night long is like I love you it's, it's like agony they the girls the teenage girls express um, joy and, and love and emotion the same way they would express having their feet gnawed off by weasels it's the same basic you know it sounds like horrible pain if you don't know that they're in love and then Justin Bieber he he's like when I was young millions of years ago and I would go to concerts they the act the musical act would hold pretty still like the Rolling Stones or you know they would plug into their instruments they couldn't really go very far especially Keith I don't think Keith could go anywhere and, 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 you know, Mick would prance around a little bit. Basically, the, the band stood still. Whatever group you saw, they kind of held still. The J- Justin Bieber, it's like w- watching a track meet. Um, he's running over here, and he's running over here, and they're running all around, and he has dancers, and they're all running around dancing and running, which I think is to keep your mind off the fact that their music sucks. But anyway, every time they run by, 
this wave of screams. It's like unbelievable loud. Um, would erupt around us. And then the most screams came when he took off his shirt. We, I don't know why he needed to take off his shirt. It's not like he has a great body. He has the same body as the guy called Gecko. He's just like not a ripped individual. Um, that was like, whoa, Justin Bieber took off his shirt. Um, so finally, there comes the, the la- we're in the last song, and Sophie and Stella realized that this is their only chance to, you know, because they couldn't get near the stage because there's mobs of, of girls everywhere. But they finally said this is their only chance now to, to get their invitations to Justin Bieber. And so they push their way. They just, we could have lost them forever, I think. And, and, I, and I see them disappear into this mob. And then I see Justin Bieber and the clot of dancers sprinting by. And two envelopes flutter into the light and land near his feet somewhere. Of course, he just sprinted right over them. You know, he's, so he didn't come to uh, Sophie's bat mitzvah, which is fine with me because I would have had to hit him. <laughs> One of the forms of humor you use in this book, and you use it very well, is the list. And uh, I, I love the, the, the manliness list. Yeah, I have, a, I have this whole theory about uh, manliness that we're not manly. Um, m- my generation is not as manly as our, the men are not, as our forefathers were. And that we've raised, you know, we're kind of soft and the kids we raise are soft. And we don't know how to do anything. We can't find anything without a GPS. We don't even flush our own urinals anymore at the airport. They, they have a little eye there connected to a urinal command post somewhere where they keep an eye and they flush it for you. And they go, it's ready now. Nope, not yep, now, you know. <laughs> but you don't do that. You don't do anything. Everything's done for us. So I thought, now I'm going to write an essay about manliness and how to be manly and how to do things, like how to cook a steak the way a man should cook a steak, how to jumpstart a car, how to, if you get lost in the woods, how to rescue yourself. Uh, that one is simple, if you get lost in the woods, in, in the wilderness. If you're anywhere in North America and you're lost in the woods, the, the key is to panic. Just get up and start running and screaming. And if you're in North America, within 20 minutes, you will come to a Starbucks. And you'll be, you'll be good. <laughs> now, uh, you also uh, tell us how to dress. And I never knew that men had been asked to wear capri pants. You seriously is, didn't know this? I did not okay. know this. this I've been following this closely for 30 years now. Because I always read the, you know, I find fashion, you know, the fashion pages, especially in the, like the New York publications, like the New York Times, to be hilarious because the fashion industry is always trying to get us to do things. And this is the only area maybe where men are superior to women. Because women do what the fashion industry tells them to do and end up and doing some silly things sometimes. Men don't. Men just, most guys just disregard whatever, except for guys in the immediate New York metropolitan area, never do what the, what the fashion industry tell them to do. And the, the best example is capri pants for men. I would say every six months for the last 20 years, the New York Times has declared, keep capri pants will be in for men. And then they always have a, you know, a, an asset picture of guys, some men wearing capri pants. Of course, these are professional models, and they're being paid to wear the damn capri pants, and even they don't look happy about it. You know, they're like looking kind of modely about it. Um, but Men don't, never actually wear capri pants, except for like two or three idiots in New York who fall for it. And people say, well, you know, there are countries where men wear capri pants. And I say, yeah, but none of those countries has ever won a war. You also, uh, you've been on tour a lot, and this means that you get to the thrill of riding in airplanes Airplanes, a lot. yeah. I, I have to say, this is something I deliberately ignore. I will drive from Northern California to Southern California. You're smart. Rather than get in a plane, because it just gives me 
too much of the heebies. So talk about coming up with an air traveler's FAQ, which is completely uh, Inaccurate. very helpful. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I'm always sort of, this is the idea behind this essay was that uh, I, I fly a great deal. And I think there must be some kind of um, IQ reduction ray beaming down on airports because people get very stupid in airports. I mean, concepts that are not that hard to grasp become almost impossible for people. Like, there's a line you have to go through just to enter the gate area where you have to do think, you produce two things, a boarding pass and a photo ID. And it's really clear from the very beginning of the line that that's what you're going to have to do when you get to the front of the line. They're going to want a boarding pass and a photo ID. Now, how hard can it be to figure... I have been in a million lines where the person in front of you, they, and every person in front of them is producing a boarding pass and a photo ID. A board, they, what do they think is going to happen when it's your turn? They go, oh, you need my boarding pass. Well, it's in my suitcase. You know, where else would you keep it but in your suitcase? And then, you know, stop. And, or, or the time you get on the plane, this is a concept a lot of people don't get. The concept is two. You can take two things on the plane. That's what they say, two things. They make that really, really clear. You're allowed to carry two things on the plane. And inevitably, there are people who show up, and they, and they have three things. And they say, well, you, you can only take two things on the plane. They're going, but I have, but I have three things. And they say, but you can only take two things on the plane. But I have three things. You know? So I, I wrote a, an FAQ for them, and I talk about the... Uh, Going through the scanner, you know, people are nervous about the scanner when it's really, it's nothing more than a giant microwave oven that bombards your body with atomic radiation. So there's nothing to worry about. And it serves a vital function. It, it, uh, it, scan, it takes an image of your naked body and sends it to a room where specially trained TSA agents uh, decide whether or not to post it on Facebook. So, but if you don't want to do that, you have the right to demand that they grope your genitals manually. It's your right. So it's, it's all in all, there's nothing to worry about. Yeah, I, I love these kind of uh, ridiculists that you, you create. And talk about using like a format that's normally used to just parlay out, you know, the driest and dullest of, of information. And then you just kind of turn that right upside down and by telling us completely insane Wrong lies. things. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a technique I learned from um, the gr my idol, the greatest humorist of all time in American literature, in my opinion, Robert Benchley which is um, silliness, just silliness. Um, this is a serious answer to a, you know, about, as we were saying, it's, only, it's hard to talk about humor without rendering it just bleh. But, but silliness is underrated as a humor device. Um, there's a tendency on the part of people who want to write humor to look, to be smart. And smarter, you know, like, I'm smart, I'm smarter than the people I'm making fun of. I'm just, that's why I'm funny, because I'm smart. But when you're, Robert Benchley, who, after whom I, um, uh, well, you know, who I consider the, the model, um, didn't he didn't worry about. It. He was a smart guy, but he was not afraid to just be silly. Just and and that is a technique that, that that surprises people probably more than most. You know, they're used to seeing other kinds of humor, but just silliness when you use it carefully in the midst usually of a very serious sounding, authoritative sounding, or at least in its you know outward appearance authoritative and serious article uh, or essay really gets people going. I mean, that's the most surprising kind of humor in a way. And I did that for my whole newspaper career because, I mean, I, I, it's a great environment to be in the newspaper because everything else in it is deadly serious, you know, it's ponderously serious. And newspaper people are trained to be 
to drain any you know interest or humor out of every every topic because of being serious objective journalists and it just was fun to be able to just completely dis you know disrupt that um, mood and mode and in writing so I'm blithering now. I'll stop. No, no, no. Yeah. That's exactly. Well, that's what interests me is that it's it's really fun in this book to see you know the the clear craft at work because also amidst while your eyes are streaming with tears because you've told us the uh, anagram for Leonardo DiCaprio's name a ripe what? raccoon dildo. I, I could not stop laughing. My, my wife, I have my headphones on. I'm reading. My wife's trying to watch TV, and I'm just like spitting out beer and whatever else I'm drinking. All now that explains why you thought it was so funny. I'm <laughs> uh, you, you, you do a great. Your prose is so crisp and clean. We kind of no. don't notice how clean this is. Does this like come out? Out? Does this flow off the tip of your pen? No, no. I'm a very slow writer, but I, I had. Um, a couple of advantages. Um, one is I, um, I, w- I have a newspaper background. I think, you know, y- you kind of learn the, the, the straightforward sentence approach from, from that that you don't learn in, in college when you're writing long BS papers. So, you know, where the goal is to pad them and make them convoluted sounding and complicated so it sounds like you gave more thought to it than you actually did. In newspapers, you're, you're more likely to be trying to just explain things um, so that's helpful, I think, in, in, in crafting um, humor. The other is, for a while, after I, after I got out of college, I went to work for a newspaper. But then after that, for a while, I taught effective writing seminars to business people. And it was like um, the, the technique I was taught, was teaching, was essentially a journalism technique. Start with the most important point. You know, back it up as clearly as possible. Your goal is to communicate, not to impress, that kind of thing. But I, I spent a lot of time analyzing other people's sentences. And, you know, these were engineers, accountants, chemists, whatever, who had to write about technical subjects and were not trained in writing particularly. So sometimes we'd have trouble figuring out what the best way to say things. And I didn't know what, anything about engineering or chemistry, but I did know, I did learn a lot about sentence structure and grammar. Um, and that I've, I've always found to be very helpful like I don't know that I could do it now, but I, I learned I was able to diagram sentences. I can I can still analyze parts of speech for you know pretty well. I'm very good at grammar, but I find that to be useful in humor in that you can uh, you can figure out what the sentence is supposed to be doing. You can figure out a bunch of different ways to do it, and you can figure out ways to do it that are wrong but better funnier. You know because you're violating you know some important grammatical principle, but you're doing it on purpose. In fact, I wrote a whole essay in this book about grammar, um, and which is not usually thought of as a humor topic. But I think it's very funny because most people, many people don't, you know, they're, we're pretty bad at grammar in this, and we seem to be getting worse. Um, and, and so this is, a whole, this is a whole essay on grammar where pretty much every single thing in it is wrong, badly wrong, but it's things that people actually do. It's based on a, um, I used to write a column regularly um, when I was writing my newspaper column called Ask Mr. Language Person. And Mr. Language Person was a grand... I patterned it after William Sapphire, his lang- language on, on grammar, I think it was on language, uh, where people would write in and ask him questions and he would answer them. But I would just make up my own questions and I would answer them. And I would always answer them wrong. Mr. Language Person was the world's worst grammar expert. So in a typical Mr. Language Person column, there would be maybe 
10 questions and, and 10 answers, and all 10 answers would be wrong maybe in five different ways. There's like 50 errors in Mr. Language Person. And what I loved about that column was the mail that I got uh, from people I called the humor impaired who didn't know that it, you know, didn't get that I was kidding. And they would go, you know, they would, they would have sent the column back to me, marked up, and they'd say, perhaps you should check your own grammar before you, and then they would have circled out of the 50 errors, two that they found, you know, they missed 48. And anyway, so I love playing off that. The, the whole essay on grammar is really aimed at people who understand, or at least literate, but, understand, but who see how it gets messed up. This is kind of an in-joke. They had a, a great uh, picture about words that have been accept mistakes that have been accepted into language, and the picture just was of an axe. It just, <laughs> <laughs> it just, it killed me. Uh -huh. <laughs> now, uh, there's a a really uh, beautiful piece of of travel writing in here. Oh, the, in my Israel trip. Yeah, your Israel trip. This is not a trip we'd expect Dave Barry to be making. Well, that's that was a little weird. Um, I belong to a temple, um, which is funny because I'm, I'm, my dad was a Presbyterian minister and I'm an atheist. But my wife is Jewish, her daughter, and our daughter is being raised Jewish. My wife is Cuban Jewish. She's Juban, they call them. Uh, my joke is they didn't come on rafts, they parted the Caribbean. And, um, but there's lots of Jubans. We belong to a, a temple in Miami. It's very, it's just reform is what it is, but it's really more like even relaxed because they let me in. So they, every year, they go on a trip, whoever wants to go. It's about, it was about 40 people. Uh, we went to um, Israel, and uh, we were nervous. My, my wife especially was nervous. You, know, you, know, you, don't, Israel's not, you don't think of Israel as kind of a fun, relaxing place. You kind of think of a place where any minute a rocket could land. But we actually had a great time. Um, it's it's a, actually a beautiful country. Food is great. People are nice, or at least nicer than and We were told everybody's going to be rude, but that was not the case for us. And um, it was a fascinating trip. There are a couple of things I, I was not crazy about, like riding a camel. You, you can, one of the tourist things you do, you go into the Negev Desert, and you get out of your bus, and then the, the Bedouin have these camel riding things where they have like 20 camels tied together nose to tail in a train. Then you put two tourists on each camel, and you know, the camels kneel down, and you climb up onto this big saddle, and then the camel gets up, and you go around about a half a mile track on your camel. And um, so you got to do that, right? Because you're a tourist, you're there. And um, I was not crazy about the camel ride. Um, the, the guide, the Bedouin guy, he's saying, um, he didn't speak a ton of English. He said, um, but he said, do not scream when camel is getting up. Camel is getting up a little funny. And I'm thinking, well, how bad can it? Because <laughs> the camel gets up really funny. And... Um, then you're up, well, it feels like you're 25 feet in the air. It's like, it doesn't feel stable. And then the camel walks in this kind of rollicking gait, so you're going backward and forward. It's not a very smooth ride. And, and when it was over, I was really glad to get off, and I thought, you know, this is how people are getting around this part of the world. No wonder the Middle East is so tense, you know? So I don't... And then the other one, I, I, went, on, I went to the Dead Sea. And that's another tourist thing you do. Only tourists would be stupid enough... If the Dead Sea appeared like suddenly anywhere in a major metropolitan area in the United States, everyone would evacuate because it's like toxic sludge. You wouldn't say, oh, well, that's a treasure. You know, let's go, let's go get in it. You know, fish are smart enough not to be in the Dead Sea. Nothing's in the Dead Sea. Only tourists are the, the dumbest life form. And because you'll go by all these signs that say, 
Do not put your head in the water. Do not get the water in your eye. Do not swallow the water. Right? Seek help immediately if you know. And, and so it's clearly they're saying, don't go in this, you know, cred and, and so we all, of course, go right in because we're tourists. And, um, and, it, and, and immediately, um, you know, every orifice in your body starts to sting. I mean, every orifice in your body is stinging. It's a really a painful experience, the Dead Sea. And you notice that the, the guide doesn't get within 100 yards of the Dead Sea. No Israeli is stupid enough to go into the Dead Sea. You, there's a really poignant and sweet moment where you're in the Holocaust. Oh, Yad Vashem. Yeah. yeah um, boy, that was, that was hard. Uh, I've been to the Holocaust Museum in, in Washington, D.C., and that's an extremely moving, difficult experience. Yad Vashem, which is the Israeli Holocaust Memorial, is, is several degrees of magnitude more, more difficult. Um, it is um, an absolutely um, gripping, you, they, they have videos of survivors who just in, a, in pretty much deadpan tell their story, tell what happened, all kinds of stories, almost all of them unbearable when you, you, know, you hear what happened to these people. And I came out of there, you know, you, and I, you know, it's 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 beautifully designed as you as you go through it. And at the end of it, and this is you know obviously meant to be very symbolic, you walk out into the this sort of sunlight, and ahead of you is Israel. And it's basically this is like, this is what people went through, so there could be an Israel. This is, Israel is the the result of this. This is the hope for for us. And I came out, but I had my my daughter, and she's like, she was thirteen. Same age as many of the, the people who had, I'd seen in those videos who didn't, didn't make it. Most, you know, most of them didn't make it. And I remember hugging her and just sobbing. You know? it, was, it was hard because you know, it would have been her. You know, she's Jewish, then that would have been that. You know, they, she would have been killed for just being, you know, for being Jewish. So um, it's, it, was, it was brutal. And it was hard for me to figure out how to work that into the, uh, um, the essay because mostly it was a humor essay. And there are a couple of other places in that essay where, you know, I wanted to at least address the fact that there are serious, serious, serious issues in Israel. I mean, I, I wanted to get across that it's not just a bunch of somber people walking around in, in uniforms getting ready to, you know, to, to go to war, although that is part of the Israeli lifestyle. But, um, you know, so I wanted to, to show that it's a real place with real people living normal lives in a, in a lot of ways. But I, I have to, you know, address that the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and other issues that go on in Israel. So I kind of, I kind of went back and forth throughout that essay. I, I thought you did a really good job at using humor to address a more serious topic. And I'd like you to just tell us. There's an interesting collection of of essays in this book. How did you come to put together this series of topics? You know, there's no. This it was very random. Um, that and the editor, when when you know, when I finally turn them all in, he's that's he says, well, what's the theme? And I go, there really isn't a theme. You know, it's like these are things that I was interested in. I don't know how you can connect an essay on grammar with an essay on Israel. Um, it's just that there are two things I was interested in. This is why they, you know, they they come up with a title. You can date boys when you're forty. Uh, that made me compelled felt compelled to write the foreword that I did. That said, you know, it's not really a book just about that. But they like the, you know, the marketing people. They want to say it's a Dayberry book about whatever. And I always say, well, when I, when I <laughs> my proposed topic, my, my proposed um, title was, a, you know, a, 
a vague general book of humor topics is probably probably the best more dis, most descriptive title but they don't want that so there, there's no real rhyme or reason to it it's just that these are things i'd like to write about and because it's a book and not a newspaper column i can you know can write longer i can have lists i can have typographical elements that i wouldn't have in the newspaper but the actual topics themselves just things that interested me last year I've been speaking with Dave Barry. His new book is You Can Date Boys When You're 40. Why are you telling me that? I already know that. Oh, you're not telling me that. You're telling them that. Thanks for speaking with me, Dave. (laughs) It was my pleasure. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.